You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Dr. John Schindler, who's a strategist, author, and commentator whose security-focused career has included a couple decades as both a scholar and practitioner. He was previously a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, where he taught courses on security, strategy, intelligence, terrorism, and military history. Before joining the faculty, he spent nearly a decade with the National Security Agency as an intelligence analyst and counterintelligence officer. He worked problems in Eastern Europe and the Middle East with a counterespionage flavor, and he collaborated closely with other government agencies. He's also served as an officer specializing in cryptology in the U.S. Navy Reserve. He's been a senior fellow of the International History Institute at Boston University, and as well as a chairman of the Partnership for Peace Consortium's Combating Terrorism Working Group, a unique body which brings together scholars and practitioners from more than two dozen countries across Eurasia to tackle problems of terrorism, extremism, and political violence. He has lectured on terrorism and security in over 20 countries. He is a historian by background with a BA and MA from the University of Massachusetts and a PhD from McMaster University. His books deal with topics like the Italian Front in World War I, Islamist extremism in the Balkans, and an insider's look at how Al-Qaeda thinks and operates. He's also a very, very avid blogger, uh, running a, a website, 20committee.com. That's 20committee.com. Of course, this is based on the legendary double-cross system of World War II British intelligence. And he's very active on Twitter, at 20committee. That's 20committee. Thank you, John, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Vince. Great to be here. So one of the main, big reasons I want to have you here is your experience in the Balkans. And, it, and it's somewhere that is near and dear to my heart because I, w- I spent a good part of a year there. Uh, can you can talk a little bit about the unclassified version of your history with the Balkans? Yeah, um, I've been dealing with Balkan stuff for a couple decades. Uh, I uh, was heavily involved uh, with Balkan issues f- for the intelligence community, uh, both uh, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, also hunts for war criminals, uh, regional stability. Um, I, I got a pretty good flavor of a lot of it. Spent a lot of time in the region. Um, you know, written a book on Bosnia, um, and I, you know, it's pretty dear to my heart. I think the you know couple decades after the end of the Bosnian War, we're still grappling with all these issues. So it's it's current again. The uh, you know the news media now in Europe is finally noticing the problems in the region, especially with jihadism and extremism. So it's, uh, you know, I was sort of a, I won't say a lone voice in the wilderness, but I was one of the few people out in front of that. And uh, I'm pleased to see that's become more mainstream in the last few years. Well, I I find it very difficult to get people interested. I know when I was deployed there in the 90s, knee deep in the middle of the conflict there, when we weren't doing anything else a whole lot around the world. So it's not like there was 
Afghanistan and Iraq and everything else right. to distract us. When I came back, many of my friends who are very well educated had no idea what was going on in the Balkans and, and, and didn't realize the, the global impact. And I think that people saw this as a regional conflict uh, and, and it didn't really kind of even sink into many people in national security affairs until they realized that this regional conflict had real global implications as weapons streamed into the Balkans from a lot of different places in the world. That's right. Exactly so. And I, I think for Americans and even a lot of Europeans, uh, the Balkan conflicts in the 1990s were sort of impenetrable. These these kind of crazy people, unpronounceable names, places most people never heard of, uh, killing each other for no reason that looks very apparent to us. And it's all just sort of sorted and it's best to look away. But as you said, there were real regional and indeed global impacts from the unpleasantness of the 1990s. My book on Bosnia deals with that on how the 1990s experience in, in Bosnia transformed al-Qaeda into a global movement. And again, this is getting out there now, but it is hard to break through that sort of wall of why should I care about this and why this is very complex, this is hard to understand, um, why should I spend some time? And there's an answer to that, but it's not a 30-second answer. And perhaps that's, it doesn't lend itself well with the soundbite experience, even in the 90s where – as I've been very critical of, U.S. Western media put forward a very cliched version of that conflict because they dumbed it down to make it comprehensible. And to do that, you leave out very, very important details. Well, it seems <laughs> that people tried to find a good guy and a bad Absolutely. guy. And, and this, you know, being there, this war was a complete and total mess. I mean, there, yeah. other than civilians who are caught in the middle, there are no good guys. Yeah, I, I think that's a very fair statement. I think anyone who's been up close to it would would agree. I mean, this is this was a classic very unpleasant, multi-sided ethnic civil war with a lot of other things, regional tensions, jihadism templated on top of it. And, of course, intelligence services from many countries. And we're at the point now where we, we can't not pay attention to this. I mean, it's certainly becoming more and more important now with the rise or the continued rise of Islamic uh, terrorism. Because the Balkans, well, or, uh, Bosnia certainly, but the Balkans as a whole, it really ends up being a gateway to Europe for jihadists, for weapons, for, for personnel. Right. And the the biggest problem there is that the unresolved issues in the 1990s in Bosnia, in Kosovo, you know, across the region, as you said, render southern Europe a, a gateway for all kinds of bad things. Weapons, drugs, extremists. Now, enormous migrant flows are coming up to these very unstable countries. And that's, you know, it is unfortunate that a generation later, these countries remain highly dysfunctional. And we do have some culpability in that, I mean, frankly. And part of that is inattention. And now we're in a situation where it's approaching a crisis again. And, and no one really knows what to do. Just uh, my greatest fear is a repeat of the 90s where we're caught holding the bag geopolitically for this. But we really don't know what we want, except we want it to stop. Well, that's not actually an answer. That's not, that's not a fix to a problem saying make it stop. Uh, and I, I'd like to see us get it right this time. Well, and we've been there for over two decades now. I mean, right. when, when, when I-4 went in in 95 yeah. and when S-4 came in afterwards, we've been training or at least trying to train the locals. Uh, even now, the 21 years later, the federal police in Bosnia are not prepared no. to take on these, these no. threats. Well, yeah, and what is really depressing for me, because I've been saying this for years and no one really wants to hear this, but the hubris of our activities since 2001 in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Central Command uh, region. Um, we are were utterly unable to transform Bosnia, which is a tiny country of 4 million people, despite enormous amounts of money, 60,000 NATO troops deployed with I-4 at the end of 1995 or 1996. And this country is still a basket case. What do you think we're going to do with Iraq and Afghanistan? That doesn't make people happy when I say it, but I've been saying it for years. If we can't get Bosnia right, there's no hope 
for templating what we think works, nation building to use the stupid phrase we use, um, onto even bigger, more complex, more messed up societies. Um, you know, it, it's a very depressing reality. We, we did not do, by we, I don't just mean the United States. I mean NATO, I mean the European Union have not done a good job in Bosnia or Kosovo at transforming broken societies into success would be a somewhat less broken society. Uh, we haven't been able to do that. Well, and for people in the United States that think that's an over there problem, right. you've written about uh, about a year ago right now, there are, there are Bosnian terror suspects arrested here Absolutely. in the United States. Several of them. Yes, quite a few. And in Europe, they're incredibly common. I mean, the, the reality is the, the Bosnian diaspora in Europe, which is, they're all over the place, but Vienna is sort of their, their off-site you know, headquarters, is one of the biggest security problems throughout Europe. And this is a, completely a, a byproduct of war and large refugee flows that have never gone home. Uh, we have a flavor of that, too. And this is, and you know, it, it needs to be said as always. The always the caveat is the percentage of uh, you know migrants uh, who are involved in terrorism extremism is very small. But I also incline to the view that one is too many. Right. Well, and you're in a position here. I mean, like what we saw with the Zernayev brothers, who weren't Bosnian, but the idea of these are not Arab men. These no. are not easily profiled as oh, there's a 25 year old single Arab male walking around. Right. Let me worry about him. This is no. these are Slavic people. You know, these could be anybody. They could be anybody. That's right. They could be you and me, frankly. That's right. And no. and, and that is deeply concerning. There's there's no getting around it. And uh, you know, as we see extremism taking ever deeper roots in a place like Bosnia, that then gets transmitted to the diaspora, and becomes our problem. Let me stay in that region to a degree and move a little north and let's talk a little bit about Russia because sure. Russia is uh, – many of us who grew up during the Cold War, Russia is still near and dear to our hearts. <laughs> and now that we're seeing a resurgence, it's uh, – my, my mom very famously in the 90s was like, we screwed up by learning Russian and by studying Russia. And now <laughs> now it's – I'm going to have a job. Um, <laughs> but I think one, one of – you know, a, a couple of weeks ago now and actually depending on when you're listening to this, it could be longer. Uh, we now – finally have the, the final word from the British on the Litvinenko <laughs> murder. Sure. Uh, and so I want to talk to you a little about the, you know, what you refer to as the return of wet work uh, inside yeah. Russia. Uh, because the reality, for those of you who have been listening to this program for a while or anything, the reality flies in the face of the Hollywood version of, yeah. of what espionage agencies do. We're not going around bumping everybody off. But the Russians seem to have been bringing this back with a little bit of a vengeance and really in new and innovative ways. This is not like sticking an ice axe in Trotsky's head anymore. Correct. You know, we're talking polonium and, and some more innovative ways of killing people. Right. The, the murder of uh, Alexander Litvinenko back in uh, November 2006 in London um, was a really shocking thing. I mean, th that, that the Russians are behind this is, is not news. So the British government has now said they're behind it, and it, presumably Mr. Putin had to approve this. Um, that is news and newsworthy. Uh, look, if you're gonna, murdering someone with polonium in a public place sends a really indelible message. There are a lot of other ways to kill people that are a lot less dangerous to the public, a lot less hazardous in general. Um, they shut down a, a defector who was becoming a problem for Moscow. P please note, every Russian defector, intelligence defector in the West went pretty quiet after this. They've been laying low for a decade now. The message was received. The Russians achieved what they wanted. Um, look, the Russians embrace assassination on a selective basis. As you said, the movies have had to believe we do this. We, we don't do this. I mean, to be fair, we kill people with drones, but that's, that's not quite the same thing as putting polonium in someone's tea in a hotel restaurant in London. 
Um, the Russians do these sorts of things, and they largely get away with it. I mean, they've been killing Chechens all over the world. Um, there's at least informed speculation there are more hits going on in Europe, perhaps even the United States. Right. The, 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 the rather odd death of Mikhail Lessin here in Washington, D.C., uh, three months ago. A lot of unanswered questions. I and mean, he certainly... He That's was a really a, interesting story, too. Yeah. He was, you know, a Putin's buddy for a long time, for founder of Russia Today. That's right. And then it sounded at some point like he was working with the FBI, and then he ends up dead. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, certainly. And l- let us let us be very clear that if you're if you're Putin, a KGB officer by training, background, and inclination, Lysine was a defector. Let's, let's be, and, and a very dangerous one, because he was an intimate of the Kremlin leadership for a decade. He knew lots of Putin's, uh, you know, methods, means, and probably secrets. Um, the idea that he moved to the United States suddenly and was almost certainly collaborating with the FBI, which wanted him in their investigation of corruption in Moscow, and he there's informed speculation he was cooperating rather than face charges himself, and that's often how these things go. Um, that would be a terrifying prospect to Moscow. So, yes, Mr. Lysian may, in fact, have just died of a heart attack, or maybe we'll never know. Right. I mean, it does bring to mind, if you're for historians, you know, the case of Walter Kravitsky, 1941, here in Washington, D.C., who died of a gunshot wound to the head. You know, 70-plus years later, people are still debating, did he shoot it himself or did someone put a bullet in his head? Um, we just don't know. Um, he was another prominent Soviet defector, Moscow defector. Um, I hope that in case we have some resolution. There, the, the inquest, the coroner's inquest is supposed to be complete soon, and let's hope that sheds some light. So speaking of Russia today, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the Russian propaganda machine, the sure. prop, active measures. Uh, this seems to have ramped up to a level we haven't seen since the height of the Cold War. Uh, the dissemination of, let's call them lies and semi-lies, uh, to try to influence Western opinion. Uh, yeah. This, I mean, this is very different than the Cold War. The Cold War propaganda focus was on the Third World, was on the those who hadn't made their decision yet about what side to join. It seems the target of the modern Russian propaganda is the American people, the Western European people, to get us to be less critical of the Putin regime. Yes, it, it has many facets. And let me say, from an operational viewpoint, the Russians aren't doing anything now they weren't doing in the Cold War. You use the term active measures, which is the proper term. But... It is much bigger. It is much better funded. The Russians literally spend billions of dollars a year on propaganda at the rest of the world. Um, and, of course, the Internet makes this very fast. I mean, it, that is a game changer. And it is tailored in different languages for different audiences. You know, there's Sputnik, which is their, 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 you know, one of their big websites. There's Russia Today, RT. And, of course, this is, goes around the world in different languages. And one of the messages is Putin's not a bad guy. Putin's is a normal state. Russia's a status quo entity. You have nothing to fear from Russia. That's one angle. The other angle is the U.S. and the West are imperialist bastards and trying to keep Russia down, which is an old propaganda line. Um, but it gets really nasty at times, too. Let's make, I mean, this is really unpleasant stuff. Um, the, the, one of the new ones is that the U.S. has biological warfare labs in Eastern Europe. Okay, this is crazy. This is just simply not true. A lot of Russian dis- disinformation is this mix of truth and, right. and spin. There's always... Successful disinformation always has at least a strong element of truth in it to be plausible. Um, putting U.S. biowarfare labs in Eastern Europe is just crazy talk, frankly. Which is, I mean, there are echoes here. Back in the mid-'80s, the KGB had a big disinformation plot to convince the world that AIDS was created Operation by... Operation Infection. Infection, right, exactly. I mean, this is the same kind of thing. Yeah. Updated. 
Um, there's an audience for this. What is really alarming is the audience isn't just left-wingers who are sort of intrinsically pro-Moscow. There's a right-wing element to this, too, which was obviously not present during the Cold War. Uh, more in Europe than here, but it's a big deal in Europe. You notice with all the migration, terrible problems in Germany that they're having. Uh, Russian media outlets were pushing a really, really uh, unpleasant story about a 13-year-old girl in Berlin who was gang-raped by Muslims. Right. It, it's just simply not true. I mean, the... the uh, the, the, there was sex, but it was apparently consensual, and it, it is a case where, and this is classic information, disinformation. This event is not true, but there certainly are rapes of German women and other women going on by Arabs and other migrants. So it's easy to play on fears when there's a narrative that's already there, and that's what they're doing. This has gotten to the level of the German foreign ministry to the Russian foreign ministry saying, hey, cut it out. Right. Well, it's, it's a good point you bring up that there, there's certainly not a lot being done to combat <laughs> this kind of disinformation, but what can be done? Like if you were, if you were the advisor – to either the president of the United States or, or you were brought in to advise one of these European countries, yeah. what can be done to combat this disinformation campaign? Um, truth. Uh, the answer to disinformation is not counter-propaganda. It's pointing out that these are lies. In most cases, this is very easy to do. Many of them are obvious lies that are easily refuted. We don't need to reinvent the wheel here. During the 1980s, during the Reagan administration, the, the U.S. government had the Active Measures Working Group, which was an interagency uh, entity led by the what was then the U.S. Information Agency, which is now part of the State Department, doing exactly this, taking Russian-Soviet lies, saying, this is what they say, this is the reality. It was very effective in, in the global audience. Um, all you need to do is replicate that. Uh, and I will tell you, um, this has been proposed. Um, the State Department was tasked last year with standing up a small effort to counter propaganda. And that was shut down by the White House. That was shut down by the White House by a senior administration official who said, and I quote, we can't upset the Russians. Well, there's one problem. If you let them get away with their lies, you're going to get more lies. I, I fail to see what's aggressive about merely debunking lies. Right. Our own propaganda, that, that can be taken the wrong way, and I don't favor us engaging that. I, I think in a free democratic society, who we are is not something we need to propagandize. But we, are, we should counter lies. And the European Union um, is undertaking this since last year. A small effort, a couple dozen people. But lies, that, lies from Moscow aimed at the EU zone are countered. They have an online bulletin. They put out a weekly newsletter. It's it's good stuff. Um, it saddens me that the EU, which is arguably the most lethargic and bureaucratically arteriosclerotic organization on earth, can get its act together and do this, but the U.S. government can't. Right. It's a choice. And I'm hoping whoever becomes president in January 2017 has a different view of this, because as long as Vladimir Putin is ruling in the Kremlin, the disinformation campaign against us will continue. And that doesn't look like that's going to end any time. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. No. Uh, so I, one of the things that people out there, even if they're not paying a lot of attention to Russia, certainly know about is the the, the taking over of, of Crimea, but the also the, the quasi-taking over Ukraine. Right. Uh, so I want to kind of move on to that a little bit. Uh, do you find, and I should probably think I know the answer to this, do you find this new return of Russian aggression somewhat worrisome? I mean, do you see... Sure. Do you see an end game beyond Ukraine? Are they going to try to to make the the Baltic states less less secure? Is there is there a fear? You see a lot of uh, a, a warmongering, a lot of uh, a saying. You know, the Baltics are next. Is NATO prepared? Sure. There's an article in that gets the national interest from a day or two so saying if the Russia invaded, it would take out NATO in sixty days. And, and yeah, that, yeah, I, I think a lot of things are going on here. Um, one of which is the Kremlin understands that um, crazy talk, frankly, works for them that they constantly double down, and it usually works for them. What I mean, they're going to push until there's pushback. That's just reality. Um, Russia is, in many ways, of course, a very weak state. With I mean, they have, as I like to say, in terms of 
size of population um, and GDP, Russia is basically Mexico with 10,000 nuclear weapons. Seriously. But they're also the biggest country geographically in the world, enormously important. Um, the collapse of the global oil markets has hit them very hard. But Russia's, you know, what's the old wag about Russia's never as strong or as weak as she seems? The Russians aren't going anywhere. Um, obviously, the rhetoric from the Kremlin used to justify the seizure of Crimea uh, in the spring of last year was very alarming with its uh, open endorsement of the notion that Russians living outside the Russian Federation, of which are, there are many millions in the former Soviet space, are a special interest of the Kremlin. No fair person is going to say that Kremlin, the Kremlin doesn't have an interest right. in Russians living outside the Russian Federation. That's normal. When that interest includes taking the territory, this is, I mean, one, one must avoid bad references to history. But, I mean, there is more than a whiff of the Hitler in the late 1930s to all this, where Germans living outside Germany, the there are problems. Yeah, of yeah, course. No. I mean, it's unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the Baltic states, Russia has, doesn't have much interest in Baltic states per se. What they do have a great interest in is breaking NATO. Uh, for Russia to achieve its aims, which Putin has articulated time and again, it's not it's not a secret plan. They talk about it quite openly, that Russia must achieve domination in the post-Soviet space, and ultimately Russians outside the Russian Federation must be brought into Russia. To do that, you have to make NATO, not in a technical way, but show that NATO is a paper tiger. Sure. Or is the United States really willing to go to war over Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania? Um, under Article 5 of NATO, the answer is yes. Is that the actual answer? particularly if it were done as a fait accompli, a blitzkrieg-type operation with lots of little green men, a la Crimea. Uh, I don't know. And believe me, I spend time in the Baltics. I know them well. They're not so sure either. Well, has has repositioning American units in in retraining with the Poles and with the Estonians and Latvians? Uh, I mean, we have combat, brigade combat teams there training. Training, yes. Well, but if they're there when the war begins, I guess. uh, My view, remember, uh, the United States Army in Europe is down to um, two brigade combat teams, neither of which is a heavy armored brigade. One of them is a striker brigade, one of them is an airborne brigade, which is actually configured for out-of-Europe operations. Um, We're training a lot. We have a lot of temporary rotational units going through Eastern Europe. I do not believe this is remotely sufficient to deter the Russians. And by the way, I think the Russians are eminently deterrable. They're not crazy. They're not out of their minds. They, They will not start a war even us regional war in Europe, unless they think they can win it very quickly. Right. Um, and they actually understand their – the general staff understands Russia's severe military weaknesses. Still, even with all the reinvestment, they are, they're, they're reality-based in private. Um, I have been calling for a couple heavy DCTs in Poland, as the Polish government has advocated for, for a year and a half now. It has not happened, and I believe – you just heard the official numbers are um, – you know, we're quadrupling the amount of money we spend on European defense for the Pentagon in the next fiscal year. That sounds great. Don't get me wrong. And money money makes – you know, Prince Eugene of Savoy, Europe's most successful general of the 18th century, famously said you only need three things to succeed at war. Money, money, and more money. Okay? More money is good. There is still no permanent movement of U.S. military forces toward the eastern frontier of NATO where they belong. And obviously not too close to the Russia, right. but close enough. Well, look, even if we put, even if we drop two more brigade combat teams in Germany now, which is not on the table, that most right. would be equipment for them. How quickly could they get to the Polish border? Really? I mean, in, in the event of crisis, if the Russians do this, it's going to be fast. Right. And if they're not in position to be within 48 hours there, it's just not going to matter. Um, my fear is, you know, the, the Russians can be deterred easily. But are we actually determined? Right. Maybe people need to start dusting off their George Kennan and kind sure. of reevaluating the idea that these 
the, the inherent Russianness of the Russians right. never gonna it's never gonna change. I mean, I think that, well, and this is one of the great geopolitical comforts of this is the Russians never change. Yeah. Their their behavior is incredibly predictable if you understand the mentality, which Putin has in spades. I mean, Putin is this sort of Soviet man, but he's become increasingly involved with traditional versions of Russian nationalism. I mean, that he, in just his speech last last week, where he castigated Lenin and said some really bad things about the Bolshevik leadership for having, you know, been bad for Russia, which certainly they were. Then he divided up republics and left this mess, this post-Soviet mess. I mean, this is a traditional Russian nationalist viewpoint. Let's make clear. That has nothing to do with communism. Yeah. And there's very, I mean, you even talk <laughs> about that ideologically, but this is a very traditional balance of power, oh, yeah. power politics thing versus some kind of ideological belief in world domination. I mean, it's right. it, it's old school, you know, Kissinger, Metternich-esque balance of power that politics. That certainly is what they say, and they sort of mean that. I mean, remember, what, what the Russians really want is they want a 19th century uh, settlement of disputes in Eastern Europe where – the top leaders of the top countries, I mean, Congress of Berlin kind right. of thing, get together and divide up countries. Well, don't get me wrong. For a historically-minded person, that sounds really good. But that's not how the world works in the 21st century. I mean, in the, in the age of democratic sovereignty, it's not going to happen. Right. It sounds great. And the problem is the Russians also talk out of two sides of their mouth in the sense that they're constantly harping about sovereignty, the Westphalian system, that state sovereignty is absolute, i.e., no color revolutions. You can't take Kosovo from Serbia. All this. Well, state sovereignty is absolute and borders are sacrosanct. Unless, of course, you're Ukraine. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it, it is this very paradoxical thing. Which even, <laughs> even in Ukraine, when they're talking about, oh, it's not us. It's an internal, natural right. revolution. I mean, the, the, the units in eastern Ukraine would not be able to pull off what they're pulling off without, with Russian logistical support without okay, maybe direct – Support. I mean, it, it reminds me, and actually, I think you wrote about this also, of what Serbia was saying in, in Bosnia. Yeah, right. Like, oh, we're not, we're not doing anything. This is a, their own Bosnian it, Serb movement. It is an exact analogy, actually, for the Bosnian Serbs in '92 to '95, in the sense that the vast majority of the troops, eighty percent of the troops, are locals. Okay, but but most of the officers, all the logistics, the money is coming from the neighboring country. Russia is completely materially, financially supporting the quote-unquote, local insurgents in Donetsk and Luhansk, which are two Army Corps, basically U.S. division-sized units. You look at them, the leadership is all Russian. They are plugged back into the Russian chain of command across the border in Russia. They yeah, Are most of the troops locals? Yes. But, as in Bosnia with the Bosnian Serbs, there's a direct, there was a direct pipeline from Bosnian Serbs to, to Belgrade, financially, logistically, materially. It's the same thing now. Is it, I'm, I'm a couple years out of this, but is the Russian order of battle reminiscent of the Soviet order of battle? Or? No, they've undergone a massive reorganization since 2008, which has um, made a big difference. They've gotten rid of a lot of the overhead. They're focusing on deployable units. What's completely gone is the sort of Cold War Soviet army, essentially a huge cadre for mobilization. That's There are still mobilization, what we would call reserve brigades, but they're much lower ready. The Russian army has now embraced a, you know, the divisions are largely gone, a, a brigade core structure, like actually most of NATO at this point, not the U.S., but most of NATO. And they've gotten rid of a lot of overhead because they had enormous bloat still lingering a generation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And look, reforming the Russian military is incredibly hard. I mean, a generational shift. Their performance in Georgia in 2008 left a lot to be desired. Um, the beginning of the reforms. But, I, I mean, you, you, it's bearing fruit now. I mean, the Russians still make dumb mistakes because the Russian army is a huge organization. Right. But they are getting better. I mean, how they're not at our standards, but they're getting better. How worried should we be about 
the the rising tensions between Russia and Turkey? I think quite quite worried because uh, I think you have in both Putin and uh, Mr. Erdogan, you have leaders who are, you know, quasi-democratic, but also quite authoritarian in some ways, um, who don't tolerate much dissent, who I, I think in many ways believe their own propaganda and have a pretty close decision-making loop. And by the way, have publics that largely support them. N- not to mention that Russia, the Russians and Turks have hated each other for centuries. This yeah, is, I mean, this, I mean, this is this is catnip. this is nothing new. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is catnip to, to both populations. It's easy to get Turks to hate Russians and Russians to hate Turks. Um, and what is alarming about this, of course, is that Turkey is obviously a NATO country um, that has problems on you know virtually all of its frontiers now. When you look at Syria, when you look toward Iran, when you look north to Russia, yeah, I mean, it's everyone's nightmare scenario where you know you have the shoot down of a Russian jet. Um, back in mid late November, which has made Erdogan and Ankara, the Kremlin's public enemy number one, that Ankara is allegedly behind ISIS, behind all kinds of crazy stuff. They have now, as I just put out a piece, they have now uh, the catastrophic loss of uh, the Russian airliner over Sinai on October 31st, which killed 224 people, essentially all of them Russians, um, appears to be terrorism. Uh, ISIS claimed, the Islamic State claimed responsibility. Um, the Russians fingered ISIS, and then the Russian jet gets shot down on the Turkish border, and suddenly the new line is it's the Grey Wolves, who are ultranationalist Turkish terrorists, which is essentially saying Ankara did this. Right. Look, this is dangerous stuff. Make no mistake. I mean, this is um, Turks aren't nice Western Europeans. They're not. They're not yeah. going to calm down. I mean, they're, this is this is these are fighting words. Um, I could easily see a situation that this could get out of control if cooler heads don't prevail, and the Russians are really playing with fire. So it might even be more. Problematic for NATO than even oh, catastrophic Balkans. For NATO. Yeah, so catastrophic. I mean, you know, uh, the Turks have, for all their enormous problems now, I get asked people all the time, why the heck are the Turks in NATO? These people are troublemakers. And Erdogan is a soft Islamist. I mean, this is not a regime that is good for NATO in a lot of ways. On the other hand, for the length of the Cold War, Turkey had the second biggest military in NATO. They paid their dues to the alliance throughout the Cold War. Um, and if they get into a dispute with the Russians, as long as they don't completely start it, they can easily call Article 5, collective self-defense. And what do we do then? Good question. Right. I mean, I, I, European governments and the Obama administration have clearly signaled to the Turks, if you go start a war with Russia, we're not behind you. But that's a different message. That's, but if the Russians start it, what do you do? Right. No one knows. It's an enormous fear in Brussels at NATO headquarters about where's this going to go. I think everyone assumes you know, cooler heads will prevail, and let's hope they do. But if they don't, this is very scary very fast. I want to point our listeners to a uh, an article that you wrote for uh, for the NSA that's now declassified, that's now available online, and um, kind of brings together the Russia Balkans angle yeah. about uh, the almost invasion of Yugoslavia yeah. by by Stalin. Um, can you can you set the stage a little bit? I mean, we're yeah. going to spend we obviously spend two hours on this. Yes, but, well, we'll spend yeah. two minutes instead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the Soviet bloc split in 1948. The Soviet domination over all of Eastern Europe ended in 1948 abruptly when Marshal Tito's regime in Yugoslavia was expelled from the Soviet bloc for ideological deviation. In fact, Tito was too revolutionary for Stalin and wanted to spread the communist revolution to Greece, which Stalin knew would provoke the Americans cause World War III and didn't want that. And Tito immediately became public enemy number one because, of course, the Soviet Union was the leader of the global communist movement. You can't have multiple centers. I mean, later on, the Chinese would have the same problem with the mm-hmm. Soviets. But this was new stuff in 1948. And you had this bizarre situation where Tito began to get Western military aid quietly at first because they were communist but not Soviet. And the Soviets very seriously prepared for an invasion of Yugoslavia in 1950. 
um, to stamp out the menace. Um, what's, there are a couple of really alarming things about this, one of which is in 1950, the U.S. military had almost no presence in Europe. I and mean, we had one combat division in all of Europe. And the defense of Western Europe was going to be nuclear. Right. We were just going to nuke the Soviet Union. Soviets had just exploded their first atomic bomb, nuked them into oblivion. It's really scary stuff. Um, we now know the only reason that didn't happen was South Korea. The, that was a test by Stalin. If the Americans would fight to defend South Korea, they would certainly fight to defend Yugoslavia, which was true. We would have. Um, so World War III was averted. One of the more interesting things is seeing that he couldn't invade Yugoslavia. Stalin kept sending KGB assassins to kill off Tito, more than a dozen assassination attempts. They actually got assassins into Tito's security guard, his inner circle, but they never succeeded. And it stopped. This is, believe it or not, a true story. This is documented. Tito, of course, had been a Soviet intelligence operative for decades before the, the Second World War when he takes over Yugoslavia. He had 33 cover names to his credit. He was a seasoned illegal. He sent a simple message to Stalin, whom he knew personally quite well, and said, you need to stop sending assassins to kill me. If you don't, I will send an assassin and I, to Moscow, and I won't need to send more than one. <laughs> <laughs> and Stalin backed off. Yeah, <laughs> Tito wasn't the nicest guy, but it's hard not to admire he, someone he got the that, job done. that was able There's... to go eye to eye with Stalin <laughs> and get yeah. him to back down. Yeah, in fact, for intelligence historians, it's really the only time the Soviet intelligence services were decisively defeated at their own hand because the Yugoslavs had been trained by them. They're using the same techniques. And, of course, Tito <laughs> basically dies of natural causes in 1980. I he lives forever. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's like 92 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he's uh, – he, he, sorry, he was 80, 88. Um, and, uh, yeah, he lived forever. And, but, I mean, he got where he was and preserved his regime with, you know, KGB-type methods. I mean, Yugoslavia had a severely nasty intelligence service during the Cold War, which I've written about elsewhere, where that actually – unlike the KGB myth, they were, the KGB was not assassinating people all over the world during the Cold War. And they pretty much stopped that in the late 1950s. It got too, too difficult for them. Mm-hmm. The Yugoslavs started it and killed 100 people in the West during the Cold War, including a dozen in the United States which we sort of looked the other way on because Tito was, Yugoslavia was kind of a sort of an ally right. in the Cold War. You know, they're, they're nasty, but they're kind of, there are SOBs, as people have said in other ways. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting story. You've been very vocal about uh, Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. <laughs> uh, so continuing on the, the Russian theme, let's talk a little bit about Snowden. Uh, you come right out and say uh, that the Snowden, you call it defection essentially to Russia, was a, Planned for an intelligence operation that that that's under the cover of what you, freedom and civil liberties that uh, that Snowden is a Russian intelligence op. Sure, I mean cer- certainly. I mean, look, the the term for a any intelligence person who moves to a hostile a country controlled by a hostile intelligence service that that word is defector. That is universally understood. Um, that Snowden is a defector is obvious to anyone who understands intelligence. Um, second. The reality is uh, May uh, 2013, um, Edward Snowden leaves Hawaii, leaves his contract job with NSA and disappears. There's a missing 10-day period, by the way, before he shows up and no one knows where he was or no one's saying where he was, where he shows up in Hong Kong, takes multiple visits to the Russian consulate in Hong Kong, which, of course, is where their intelligence residency is, celebrates his birthday with the Russian diplomats, and then moves to Moscow. Julian Assange, the head of WikiLeaks, has stated that Ed Snowden's move to Moscow was what Julian Assange recommended to right. him. Uh, he claims Ed won't prefer to go to Latin America, but J- Assange said, you'll be safer in Moscow. How did Assange know the Russians would take him? I mean, this is a big thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this, is, this, is, this was front page news around the world. You know, I mean, 
there was always a chance that Moscow would say, you know, we don't need the hassle. We don't need the hassle. How did, how did Julian Assange know the Russian intelligence services, the FSB, would, FSVR, would sponsor Edward Snowden? Good question. Um, uh, you know, wh- when what I call the Snowden operation began is a very good question that I don't know that we'll be able to answer for a very long time. Certainly, Snowden became in a Russian intelligence asset when he shows up in Hong Kong. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, how much could he possibly have told them about the NSA that they didn't already know? I think uh, actually very little. I, I, I think you have to understand, um, and this is critical. I'm working on a book right now about all this. Um, no, don't give away too much. Don't give away too much. I won't. Yeah. Hold for film rights. Um, the, a couple points here. One was I think Edward Snowden fleshed out some details but didn't really tell Russian intelligence much of anything he didn't know about himself. And I don't think Snowden's purpose was getting information. Snowden's purpose is propaganda. It's active measures. Um, it is humiliating NSA, attacking American intelligence, attacking the Western Intelligence Alliance. I'll go further than that. I think Snowden is the cover for the real moles. Okay. Uh, well, which is classic Russian tradecraft, by right. the way. Um, couple data points, one of which is um, the 2010 very successful FBI-U.S. intelligence roll-up of the Russian illegals network in the U.S., the 10 SVR illegals who right. were arrested and expelled. The U.S. public looked at the hot redhead, Miss Chapman, Chapman and, no. and that got all the attention. And also it was presented as sort of comic opera. But people don't understand what illegals are for, and these are what we would call non-official cover um, at, uh, operatives, um, although the illegals doctrine is much more advanced than anything like U.S. intelligence has. Part of what illegals do is they s- deal with agents that it would be too dangerous for SVR, known SVR, right. officers to deal with, including deep penetration moles. We know that among the – there were several leads for moles um, – Inside U.S. intelligence from that illegals network in 2010, including one or more moles inside NSA. I haven't heard news of any arrests of any moles inside NSA in the last six right. years. Have you? Yeah. So, so your, your contention is that Snowden is getting the NSA to chase their tails to find out yes. what was leaked, what, what damage did he do, exactly. while at the same time they're not looking for these moles. I haven't found them. And yeah. I'll go more than that. Um, in October 2012, uh, 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 this was hardly covered at all in the U.S., um, a Canadian naval officer, uh, Mr. Delisle, Jeffrey Delisle, was arrested and subsequently sentenced to a long prison term for having spied for Russian military intelligence group for the, for the previous five years. And Delisle, Lieutenant Delisle was serving at in Halifax, the Canadian Naval Intelligence Fusion Center. And he would once a month, was never caught until the end, uh, would take a USB stick and download all kinds of classified and walk out with it and sell it to Gru. Um, Gru gave him shopping lists for information. And he gave them tons of SIGINT because the Five Eyes SIGINT. Um, he asked them if, asked his Russian handlers about specific SIGINT and information assurance programs if they wanted it. They didn't want them. Hmm. If you're a seasoned counterintelligence person, this is gold stuff. This is American communications and communication security, including the security of America's nuclear weapons communications. The only reason the Russians would not want that yeah, is because they, they have it. it. No. <laughs> well, so, so the conventional wisdom since the breakup of the Soviet Union and the fall of the KGB was that SVR – I mean FSB is still very good. But that SVR was kind of bubbling and stumbling its way through the post-Cold War they War. They had a rough 90s. Yeah. I mean, you're, basically, you're basically arguing that they're pulling off what will argue, come down as one of the greatest operations in history. I mean, the moving parts in this are pretty extraordinary if Snowden actually is kind of – what you're we're claiming he is. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Um, the 90s were really rough for both SVR and GRU. A lot of their 
there was, you know, due to cash shortage, chaos of the collapse of the Soviet Union. A lot of aid operations just died in the vine. I mean, in the early 90s, there wasn't much going on. In the late 90s, it started up again. But of course, it's Putin coming to power, right. who is a Czechist, to use their word, a, a, counter, a, a Soviet intelligence officer, to his core. And he has enormously prioritized intelligence and foreign intelligence operations. He believes, like any good Czechist, that this is the key to Russian security. Um, we have it on, first of all, the, Putin's entire inner circle, the people who have the ability to influence him, are all people exactly like himself, who come out of the KGB or GRU, who come out of the, the Soviet intelligence model. Um, this is groupthink of a very impressive kind. Two, we have it on good authority that Putin personally reads a lot of the intelligence coming to him. I mean, he takes time every day. I mean, he loves it. I mean, he's, he's, he's the ultimate spy. He's a spy master running the country. Right. Um, he prioritized foreign intelligence collection on the SVR in a big way once he came to power. And we began to see this even by 2005, 2006, restoring networks. By the late 2000s, Russian espionage against NATO was at the levels it was at the height of the Cold War in terms of numbers of officers, numbers of operations. Um, this isn't a new story. We're just right. noticing it now. Snowden right. made everyone pay attention. And there were a lot of missed signals. The Legals Network in 2010, people should have been outside, just counterintelligence circles should have been paying attention. Right. The Russians view their, what they call the special services, which are all the intelligence services, not just as information agencies, but as fundamental core agencies of state power. Far beyond what we just call covert action. I mean, right. this, this is, and for Putin, this is the essence of his regime. Everyone focuses domestically, obviously, in the FSB, that he's sort of perfected the counterintelligence state. But this goes for operations abroad, too. And remember, just, just as in the Soviet time, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs is essentially irrelevant. I mean, Sergei Lavrov, I mean, yes, he does press releases and talks, but important foreign policy decision-making is not in the hands of the foreign ministry. Mm -hmm. It's in the hands of the SVR, the military. These are the people who actually make the decisions. And Putin has made that, as it was in the Soviet Union, but even more so. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, the SVR has gotten their act together. Are they as good as they were in, as the KGB's first chief directorate was? I think that's a debatable point. I, 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 maybe not. They, they have a lot of mistakes. But on the other hand, they still are getting very elite people to join. Um, they are making up in some cases for numbers. You know, that the illegals were caught in 2010, and there was an illegal caught last year in New York who was spying on Wall Street. These were not Cold War quality illegals, but there were a lot of them. And then presumably they're more out there that we don't know about. Yeah, the ones we're catching, probably the, the exception that... The screw-ups. Yeah, you the catch screw the screw-ups. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to wrap this up with one final kind of area of conversation here, because you, you tend to see this more and more often when things like presidential campaigns are happening, is anyone who tries to dabble talking about intelligence... Usually the old standby is we need more human. We need more spies sure. on the ground. We're getting too dependent on technology. And sure. as a former CI guy, a former SIGINT guy, um, I, I would think the calls for more human, it shows a pretty dramatic misunderstanding of how intelligence Absolutely. works. It, particularly when we're talking about stuff, people like ISIS and North Korea and these, yeah. these states where you can't just go in and if you're captured – you're captured in Russia today as a knock or, or as, you know, if you have official coverage, easy. But even as a knock, you're going to get traded for. You're going to get, you know, roughed up a little bit. But for the most part, you're going to live. The yeah. idea of let's send spies into ISIS and let, sure. you know, the, the, the last thing the CIA needs is their agents having their heads chopped off or set on fire inside a cage. And, and, I, and I think there's a really interesting, sadly so, misunderstanding of what human mean, what the intelligence community as a whole. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, humans, great stuff. 
Um, it is hard to do against certain targets. Um, it's not particularly fast. And it's, it can be very dangerous. I mean, this is the reality. Uh, people who cry for more human, that is the, the, to me, it's the sign that this person doesn't know what he or she was talking about. Because as wonderful as human is against targets, you said, like ISIS, are we really willing to send American intelligence officers into ISIS land to get tortured to death and killed? I hope not, because that's, that's a risk no one should have to take. That's what liaison services are for. They're foreign partners who can do that much more effectively than we can. Countries, you mentioned North Korea, Iran, which are hard, if not completely rock-solid targets in the sense that we have no diplomatic missions there. We have no businesses there. What would a knock be pretending to be? A Belgian? I mean, right. I mean, you could, but good luck with that. I mean, you know, hope everything works out. Don't get caught. Um, the reality is this. The, the American unit model as practiced by the Central Intelligence Agency honed during the Cold War is perfectly fine at what it does. And what it does, it does perfectly okay. Um, it is not an aggressive Russian-style service designed for long-term penetration of hard-target countries. And that's nothing wrong with that. Our SIGINT is really outstanding, um, even with the Snowden problems. Um, you know, 80% of the intelligence in the U.S. government year in, year out, roughly comes from NSA, comes from signals intelligence. It's very consistent. And as I've said for years, as long as people, businesses, countries around the world are dependent on information technology, phones, emails, computers, whatever, to conduct their daily lives, SIGINT's going to dominate. Right. It's been that way for 100 years since the First World War. It's not going to change. Obviously, what you need to do, and we have made enormous progress here in the last generation at integrating human and SIGINT. They are, the notion they're opposed to each other is that's a movies thing. That's, right. not, that's not a reality thing. They leverage each other all the time. And, of course, the biggest shortcoming we have is not human. It's in counterintelligence. And our counterintelligence is a train wreck, um, even before Snowden, long before Snowden. Uh, CI has been the, you know, the poor stepchild of the U.S. intelligence community since the beginning. I mean, the incident that should have gotten everyone's attention back at the end of 2009 at Ford Operating Base Chapman in Afghanistan, when an al-Qaeda operative who was being run by our Jordanian partners. We thought we set up a meeting with him at this base in Afghanistan, this in doctor. Coast, yeah. In coast, And instead he's wearing a bomb vest and blows up and kills nine people, including eight CIA officers, including the chief of that base. Right. Um, the biggest single loss in CIA history. That should have been the wake-up call because this was a classic case of failure of counterintelligence vetting. We took it at the Jordanian's word this was good. Now, Jordan has an outstanding intelligence service, especially, especially dealing with these, this problem set. But it's the temptation that the Jordanians wanted to believe this was true, that they had, had gotten a guy who came to them, a volunteer, who's deeply embedded in al-Qaeda, and he can meet with Dr. Zawahiri and the al-Qaeda leadership. This is a dream come true if you're doing counterterrorism intelligence. Um, the Jordanians wanted to believe. Then they told us. We wanted to believe because the president was briefed from this. This is amazing. I mean, this, this could be – this is the access you've always wanted. And a lot of basic questions were not asked. When you want something to be true – when it has to be true, you believe it's true. Uh, any counterintelligence person would have had a million questions about this case. Counterintelligence failures don't usually get people killed in large numbers. This one did. Yeah. This should have caused a fundamental reassessment of are we integrating counterintelligence into what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. We're not. Uh, not a new problem. Now it's getting people killed. And that assessment really – there's been some window dressing, but it's not happening. It's, it's not fundamental. So, so when are you expecting your new book to be coming out? Um, later this year. Um, it's about the uh, the problems of the U.S. intelligence apparatus under the current administration, and also going back, frankly, to the Bush forty three administration. This is not the problems not start in January two thousand nine, 
at all, but they have become more acute. I mean, we see this with the Snowden debacle. We see this with a lot of the problems in counterterrorism I was talking about. We see this with OPM and the hacking scandals right. where, I mean, everything's been taken. I mean, let's, let's be blunt here. This is, these are failures without precedent and certainly American, history, American intelligence history, maybe anyone's intelligence history. Um, we're in a very bad place. Whoever becomes president in January 2017 is going to have a lot of hard work to do with the intelligence community and the Pentagon, the parts of the Pentagon that play in this, where we have to get serious and clean house here. I mean, the damage from the hacking and Snowden will last a generation, but the sooner you start fixing it, the sooner it gets fixed. Well, Dr. John Schindler, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. His website is 20committee.com. That's 20committee.com, and he's under the same real handle on Twitter, at 20committee. Thanks, John, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me, Vince. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.